Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, January 27th, we're studying Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 26. Jesus' Galilean ministry continues as he cleanses a leper and he forgives the sins of a paralytic before making him able to walk. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. Dr. Kuntz serves as Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, welcome back to Sharp Ryan. It's great to be with you. Thanks for having me. As we get started, let's talk a little bit of context. What's Luke been doing in his gospel? How do What do we need to know leading up to the text we've got for today? Luke has been setting up the beginnings of the ministry of Jesus, which starts in, you know, in Luke, especially with the announcement in the synagogue uh, that the Jubilee year is now here. The reign of God is now here in Jesus Christ. And directly before our reading, Jesus has begun to call uh, his first disciples to carry out with him uh, the ministry that he is engaged in, uh, which we're going to see today. One, one question about context, and I, it may have to do with more the way the English is translated, but you know, Luke is known as the historian. He says he, he did his research. He talked to these eyewitnesses. Mm-hmm. He's given us some very specific historical context in certain spots at the beginning of chapter two, the beginning of chapter three. But now for several texts in a row, he's a lot more generic in the way that he sets the context. And again, this is the English translation, but the previous text, on one occasion— and we're going to encounter today, while he was in one of the cities, on one of those days, Luke suddenly seems that he's less concerned about the the very particular things and instead kind of puts those in the background and highlights just what Jesus is doing. Any any thoughts on, on why Luke makes that move here? I think one of the joys of reading the Gospels is finding the differences in the little particular details which give you such an insight into the writer that, for example, John is rather particular about his geography and his timing. Uh, Luke is less particular, but Luke's world is much bigger than any of the other three evangelists because he will eventually get, you know, the cross of Jesus being proclaimed all the way in Rome with a very geographically detailed sea journey on the way. But in Galilee, he's not very detailed. And that may be perhaps because he doesn't have access to those people directly who might know that. Um, It would seem, for example, that Luke would have spoken to Mary because Luke is the only gospel in which we get uh, not only a lot of things surrounding the birth of Jesus uh, and, and prior to his birth that the other three gospels don't have, but also little notes about how Mary took certain things that were said or done and then, you know, treasured them up in her heart and pondered them. So we we have a glimpse of Mary's inner life in Luke's gospel that we don't in others. But we don't have that geographic 
you know, exactitude that the other three evangelists who I think by background were simply more familiar with the Galilee, um, you know, Matthew, Mark, uh, and then John all are either natives or extremely familiar with the area. Luke is not. And it is part of, I think, the wonder of scripture to, you know, find the, the, the beautiful little things that each evangelist has for us and not to demand that Luke and John say the same thing in exactly the same way or, you know, whatever the case might be. Sure. And I mean, if, uh, if I can piggyback on that, it almost sounds like in this case, you know, the fact that he is a bit more generic in the way that he writes it actually adds to the historicity of it. And you, you see that, you know, this wasn't something put together to make them sound all the same, but you actually see, you know, the fact that he's a little less specific here in this Galilean ministry section, that would indicate that, yeah, Luke actually did write this himself, and he's a little less familiar, so he writes it in this way. Yeah, and I, I think, too, that if you think about, you know, every every verse of Scripture has really two authors. You've got a human author, and you've got the Holy Spirit of God. And when you think about the Holy Spirit, something you can see throughout Scripture is that he is not anxious or worried about proving himself to us. He is free to use the different human authors and the ways that they can be useful to his purposes in giving us scripture. And, in the, you know, really in the same way that scripture doesn't say, okay, here's, you know, a three-step proof that God exists. It just says, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and, vo and void. It's not anxious. God is not anxious, right? He's not worried that we won't like him or receive him or care about him. And so I think it is part of his royal pleasure to use even people whose geography is a little bit fuzzy sometimes because he's not anxious that everything should meet our expectations of how things should be said. I like that. That's that's helpful, Dr. Kuntz. Any more introductory material before we jump into this text? No, I don't think so. Let's go for it. All right, so we're in Luke 5, beginning at verse 12. While he, Jesus, was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for a proof to them. But now even more, the report about him went abroad, and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he, with, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. That takes us through verse 16 of the text. Jesus cleanses a leper here in Luke chapter 5. So, Dr. Kunz, just to help us get started, tell us a little bit about leprosy. What disease are we talking about, and, and what all is connected with a person having leprosy at this time? Yeah, leprosy for modern people, such as we are aware of it, is really a specific condition known as Hansen's disease, uh, which has a specific set of maladies. The word, as used in the Bible, covers both what we would think of as Hansen's disease, which you may have heard a sermon about, people's you know, limbs being numbed gradually and then falling off. But scripturally, this is not necessarily the case. It could be, but doesn't have to be. If you look at the Levitical law, you'll be able to see that 
uh, even certain conditions uh, that we might describe as like mold or rot in a wall are associated with leprosy in human skin. So you're dealing with a wide variety of things that are corrosive, rotting, destructive of the skin, could be what we call leprosy, might not be. The point really is that all of this is going to keep the person away, both from other people, but also from the nearer presence of God. Because the reason that the condition appears in the Levitical law is so that the priests can learn how to handle these things so that eventually the person may, if the leprosy somehow disappears, no means for making it disappear is really given necessarily, but should it disappear, then here is the procedure for how the man can be cleansed and restored, therefore, to the, to the people that are allowed to come in or near the tabernacle where God meets with man. With the, that social reality that's involved about not being able to go near to people, one of the things that strikes me in this text is that it seems that the leper is the one initiating the context or the contact with Jesus. Perhaps, I mean, it seems like that's just one of the parts of this text, I think, that doesn't seem to be quite in place or quite what you'd expect, given what you know about leprosy and these skin diseases from the, Levit the Levitical law. Yeah, and even if we, you know, even if we just think about this in strictly biblical terms, not only um, medical terms, or, you know, we're afraid of catching something, so we stay away. When you think about this in biblical terms, you're also realizing that biblically, in the Old Testament, the problem is, what happens if you either are a leper or come into contact with one? No one is setting up a law to handle a situation where you reach out and you touch the contagious person freely, right? Because, yeah, it's, it is weird that the leper initiates this uh, discussion, uh, this small conversation, but it's even weirder that when he asserts politely that Jesus could solve this, Jesus then solves it. He doesn't say, well, hey, don't touch me or I'm going to get sick like you. He touches him. So I think that one of the things you can see the more you know the Old Testament are both the areas where the New Testament fulfills the Old Testament, but also where there's sort of a gap in the Old Testament. For example, in this case, well, how do I fix leprosy? <laughs> I know what to do if I get touched by a leper. I know what to do if I'm healed. I know how to be cleansed. But what about in the middle part where something needs to be fixed? No remedy is provided. So when I come to the New Testament, now I begin to see remedies everywhere. Oh, and those remedies are, are found in Jesus, I think is the, the point, right? I mean, that's what Jesus, he's the one that that initiates the the touch then. I mean, he touches him and yeah. says, I will be clean. And maybe if I can follow that that same thinking a little bit more, mm -hmm. um, before, I, there's some things I want to come back to, but just since we're on this topic, you know, on the one hand, it does seem strange, according to the Levitical law, that Jesus would reach out and touch him. That, that seems like mm -hmm. that would be a big no-no for Jesus to do. And so he, mm -hmm. he does that seemingly in the face of what the Levitical law would say not to do. 
And right. yet, on the other hand, after in verse 14, Jesus tells this man to go and show himself to the priest, just like Moses commanded. So yeah. there, there he's following the law of Moses. So what is, I mean, what are we seeing here yeah. in terms of the relationship between Jesus, what he's come to bring, and, and then the Levitical law? Yeah. So I think, you know, maybe this is a pop culture thing, and maybe we wouldn't like Jesus if he weren't cool, and he can't be cool if he follows the rules, you know? So maybe this is—but I sometimes hear pastors say, you know, Jesus broke the law, maybe, or or, or Jesus was, was ignoring the law or something like that. And none of that is really— strictly speaking, true. Jesus is not breaking the Levitical law by touching the leper. He is going beyond anything for which the law would be a remedy. This is something different, right? It's one thing to say, well, hey, um, you know, you can't, um, you know, there's no law against my saving a child from, you know, who is not my child from an oncoming car. Right. But I don't I don't stop and think, is there a law that covers this situation? I see the child in danger. I see the car coming and I grab the child out of the way. It's very simple. It's just, you know, there's no no lawyer is is writing a law concerning the situation. Similarly, the law of Moses is not intended as a remedy for all evils that human beings suffer, including disease. It can cope with some of that. It can tell you what to do if some of that goes away or shows up or whatever, but it's not going to fix anything permanently. And I think the leper understands that. So Jesus is not saying, hey, no, I don't I don't like the law. The law's bad. I'm cool. I ride a motorcycle, whatever your idea of being cool is. So I don't need the law. He's not against the law. In fact, where it applies, such as Here's a man who has been cleansed. Please go show the priest that you have been cleansed by God's almighty power. Wonderful. But where the law doesn't cover this, can't handle this, can't cope with this, Jesus is not upset by that, right? But the remedy he brings is much greater than anything that Moses was able to deliver. So, okay, just to, to tr- try to reiterate this and, and maybe make sure I'm understanding, Jesus isn't yeah. breaking the law here, no. but he but he is, he and maybe we can use some other words that you see elsewhere, Jesus fulfills the law, he uh, completes the law, and, and maybe this is what I think I'm getting from you, he's doing what the law cannot do. So yes. it's, it's not yes. that he broke it, but he's doing that which the law just never was intended Correct. to do. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. John says this very clearly when he says the law came by Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What John is saying is Moses can't bring you everything you need. And the law doesn't, it can show you how to find who's a leper. It can show you how to certify that someone is no longer a leper. The law never was able to change someone from not from being a leper into not being a leper anymore in the same way that when paul talks about the law paul doesn't blame the law he just says the law is not meant for salvation the law brings knowledge of sin the law shows you who lepers are it doesn't do anything about it can't fix sin it can't take it away only the blood of the son of god can take away 
the stain of sin. So this is an example of Jesus is fulfilling the law. Jesus is at peace with the law, which is his father's law. Of course, the son is at peace with the father. But the law was not given in order to save. And so it doesn't turn lepers into clean men. Only Jesus can do that. Then in terms of the the part where Jesus does tell this man to go to the priest, make this mm-hmm. offering as Moses commanded. So there the law, yeah. you know, is is being used in a good way. What yeah. about this business for a for a proof to them? What's the what's the proof or the testimony that's being given by this man going to the priest? Yeah. Yeah, the the body of the clean man is a testimony or a, a certificate we might even say. You know, you say well, uh, it says on your resume that you are a college graduate. Do you have a transcript? You know, less often they ask you to show your degree, show me your physical degree, bring it in to the job interview. You know, to, to pr- this is who you are. This is your, you know, your driver's license. This is proof you're allowed to operate this vehicle. So what's happening here is that the priest will himself certify that this man has been cleansed. We actually sometimes see this in the Gospels, where more often in John's Gospel, you get the cleansing, the opening of the eyes of the blind, whatever the whatever the marvel is, and then you get some third party not seeing Jesus necessarily, but seeing that this person is healed. And the reactions to that vary as widely as any reactions to Jesus do. But what's going to happen is now, okay, well, where did this come from? This is a, yes, he's certainly clean. So how did that happen? And and now that question will be being asked by people all around. How did this happen? Where did this come from? This man was always a leper as far as we knew. And now here he is and he's clean. So that proof is going to be proof or certification that the man is actually clean. And the proof is the body itself now free of disease. So, and then I think this is related then why that proof, but not the man's own word. You know, I mean, that's part of this too, that Jesus charges this man to tell no one. So why does the man need to do the mosaic part for the proof rather than just sending the man out? Hey, go, go tell everybody you're clean and tell, tell everybody I did it. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I know. Well, and I, you know, I like, I, I I like evangelism as much as the next, (laughs) you know, pastor. So these things can sometimes be confusing. My, my four-year-old asked me, you know, twice a day for several days after we read this at home, uh, you know, why did why doesn't Jesus want people to talk about him? And that's a very good question because he wants people to believe in the right things that he has done. I and this only only seems complex until you think about the crucifixion itself. Because Jesus can be doing the most wonderful things, such as offering himself as a sacrifice for sin and rising for our justification. And people can still mock him, disbelieve in him, say the disciples made it up, whatever you see in the different Gospels. The same thing is true during his ministry. He can do wonderful things and people don't like it or don't want to believe in it. So what's happening when he's saying don't say anything is that the proof of who he is or that God is reigning will be seen directly rather than merely by report. 
So it's not, you know, because reports are relatively easier, I think, to dismiss than physical evidence. The same thing happens when John the Baptist is dying and he sends his disciples out or languishing in prison, at least. We know he's going to die soon. And Jesus's response to are you the one who is to come or do we look for another? Right. Which is a very good evangelism question. Right. Like, am I in the right place? Am I getting the real deal? And Jesus doesn't say, well, I told you all of this or other people told you all of this or go back and read the Bible. He refers to the things that he has done, the things he has done. Jesus shows you his fruit. And then he says very humbly to those disciples, blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Right. So the same thing is going on here. The Levitical proof is the man's body and the man's body speaks volumes that the man's words could not do. And even if he did, would not necessarily be believed. And so then, I mean, is in that sense, is all of this, I think this is where you're going, it points forward then to the ultimate thing that Jesus is going to do, which is his own body being crucified and then raised on the third day as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I love and the same humility, gentleness and lowliness of heart prevails also after the resurrection, because he doesn't show up screaming at them. Why did you desert me? Didn't you read the Bible? I told you this was going to happen. He shows them his hands. He shows them his side, you know, and it's very, it's very calm. And he proves by eating fish in John's gospel or making himself manifest in Luke's gospel on the road to Emmaus. He proves that it's really him. Right. So finally, his his proof, his testimony, if you will, is his body, which has accomplished the work set out for him by the father and now is alive forevermore. The body speaks even more than the words that he has said that they themselves have often half forgotten. I want to circle back around to to something earlier in the text, because I'm glad we followed that line of thinking. But there were a couple things else, to, I think, to look at. One is is the man, the leper. As he comes to Jesus, his posture of falling on his face, of begging Jesus, and then the actual prayer that he speaks to Jesus— yeah. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. What are we seeing of, of what this leper expects, believes he's going to receive from Jesus? Well, the posture is great because the posture expresses the man's lowliness of heart. And so it's Luke has this attention to people's bodies and the way they behave, especially in worship. So in chapter, you know, I think it's 18, uh, where the Pharisee and the publican are in the temple together. And the Pharisees up front and, you know, he's telling God, it's so great. You didn't make me like other people. And the publican is in the back and he's he's beating his breast. You know, and his he's lowered his he's looking down and he's praying a prayer of repentance. So the words either of faith or of unbelief go with the posture. The posture expresses what the mouth is saying. So here, the posture goes along with what the mouth is saying, where he's begging and saying, if you are willing, if you want to do this. And I, I, I love this way of speaking with Jesus because he's asking for something big, but he's not being 
rude about it or something, you know, um, he's saying, if you will, you can change my whole life right now, hmm. you know, and I love both those things because I think sometimes our prayers can be, I mean, besides just being lazy or whatever, not praying like we should, this kind of thing, other hindrances to prayer include you don't really know how to ask um, and you don't know what to ask for. And the how to ask is includes, I think, the understanding that he will hear you, but he doesn't have to do what you say. You're not his boss. If you if you are willing, if you would, sir, you know. And then on the other hand, the what to ask for, just because he is mighty and you are not, doesn't mean you can't ask him for big things. I mean, this is the line in, I think the hymn is, come my soul with every care. Jesus loves to answer prayer. Um, uh, large petitions with you bring, for you are coming to a king, right? I mean, if he is not just mighty, but almighty, why don't you ask for something big? I mean. What's it going to hurt? He doesn't give you exactly what you're asking for. And then you're where you were now or somewhere different that is even better because he answered your prayer or he gives you exactly what you're asking for. Why not? Why not? Mm. What's stopping you? And I love the leper because he comes with such humility, but also he says, I know you can do this. <laughs> it's amazing. I mean, it's amazing faith, you know? I know you can do this. I know who you are, so you can do this. So, I mean, there, there's this, and maybe it's, it seems like a strange juxtaposition, although I, I think it goes perfectly together, that in a Christian prayer, there is this deep humility, recognizing who I am and to whom I'm coming and my, my utter unworthiness to do so, and that he doesn't have to do what I say. Right. And yet at the same time, because I recognize who he is, there is this great boldness and confidence to ask for the the greatest of things because because of who he is and i mean i, I think too just of, of luther's explanation of the very beginning of the lord's prayer that god is our father and all that that entails you know not only right. is he the one who's in heaven who is almighty and can do it but he's he's also our father who loves us and right. wants to do these things which again right. ties these two things together from the leper that's right yeah yeah and and the leper the leper is going to be he, he's coming right after the disciples begin to go out. And so, you know, the person who's never been a leper, which is probably everybody listening, uh, maybe identifies more with the disciples as you hear the gospel story. But when you get to the leper, realize that the leper is going to be doing in this very act of asking something that the disciples are going to struggle to do because, they're going to be spending their time, you know, worrying about who's going to be in charge when Jesus is gone. So the leper is is picking up on the central reality of living with Jesus, which is that he is amazing and can do wonderful things. And the disciples will sometimes forget that, right? Sure. Sure. <laughs> They're sometimes into other stuff, you know, and the leper... The leper just has the one thing that he needs, and it's big, so he's just going to ask. Mm. And and then Jesus gives, and that that too yeah. is just I mean what a what a powerful thing from Jesus. And in the Greek, I think it's just two the two words: I will be clean, 
and yeah. there it is, the gift delivered. And what a what a beautiful picture of Jesus. We're going to keep seeing more of this picture of Jesus on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO, looking at Luke 5 with Dr. Adam Kuntz. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, January 27th. We're studying Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 26 with the Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz. He is Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Dr. Kuntz, prior to the break, we were talking about the cleansing of the leper that Jesus accomplishes in verses 12 through 16. Now we move on to another account of Jesus' miracle. This time he's going to heal a paralytic. So we pick up the text now in Luke 5, 17. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus." And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things today. That's the rest of our text for today. That was Luke 5, 17 to 26. Dr. Kuntz, if I've been reading correctly here in Luke, this is the first time we actually meet the Pharisees in Luke. As readers of the gospel, we're familiar with the Pharisees, but this, I believe, is the first time he's mentioned them in his narrative. So remind us, who are the Pharisees? They're a group of people who first got uh, organized as a self-conscious group in a lot of the uh, political controversies, which are for the Jews, also always religious controversies in about the second century BC. So they've been around as a group that it, certainly other people can identify for a while now. It might sort of be helpful to think of some of these groups as similar to denominations, but as if denominations, as they sort of do in America, uh, also reflected very different political convictions so the Pharisees and then the teachers of the law who are not denoted as a, they're not, you know, like a party or a group, 
but a, a you know people who have a certain function proclaiming the law of God. They may or may not be priests at this point, but they're explaining what the Bible means to people. That is that's you know that's sort of the activity that the Pharisees are involved in, and their religious distinctive opposed to different groups in Israel at this time is that they want to take the holiness that if you just read the Old Testament applies and is and is meant for the area in and around uh, first the tabernacle and then later the temple and take those holiness laws and then extend them to everybody everywhere all the time, right? So, uh, you know, the Old Testament is not generally really telling you, okay, here's what you do with, you know, when you get a tenth of, uh, I don't know, uh, flowers that you pick uh, in order to make a certain kind of, you know, herbal tea, right? But the Pharisees would think, oh, if I have to tithe this, that, or the other thing for the temple, as indicated in Leviticus or something, then I must need to tithe everything. So that's why they're going to, as you see in the Gospels, they're tithing tiny, tiny herbs, mint and dill and cumin, because they're taking that law and then they're extending it you know, sort of through a set of principles and ideas to everything that they do. And so they're very interested in a person like Jesus, not only because they may have heard things that he had done, but also because he himself is this kind of person that's very interested in, okay, well, what does the Bible actually say about what's happening? Now that's for, for Jesus and thus for us, the Bible's going to center around Jesus. For the Pharisees, the Bible's going to center around how they figure out what to do. Well, and, and that's ultimately, I think, the reason why the Pharisees and teachers of the law and, and their other groups as well, that's the reason they come into conflict with Jesus is because they're viewing the scriptures through two different lenses. Right, right, totally. Yeah, and, and it is why even when something marvelous happens, as we're, as we're seeing right here in the reading you just did, their rage is so great because— the very things that Jesus does, the way that Jesus is with people and for people is outrageous to their sense of what the Bible means and thus of who God is. In terms of the the Pharisees, you know, we, I think, at least when I read the scriptures, I see Pharisees and I think bad guys because, you know, mm -hmm. they're constantly against Jesus. But for the people of Jesus' day, say this this crowd that's around who sees this miracle, when they think of the Pharisees, do they have that negative connotation about the Pharisees, or would they have been viewed more positively in their own day? Yeah, the, the Jewish historian Josephus, who is very helpful for understanding especially the, the New Testament and, and mostly the Gospels, uh, claims that the Pharisees are the most popular group uh, or party, denomination, uh, affiliation in among the Jews at this time. So I don't think they see them as bad guys. Um, I think they see them as one group among others. And uh, this is a group that at least uh, studies the Bible diligently, such that when Paul is faced with uh, you know, a growing mob in Jerusalem, he will remind the Pharisees in the crowd that he was raised by Pharisees and is on trial concerning the resurrection of the dead because the Pharisees, since they read the whole Bible, actually do believe that the dead rise, whereas the Sadducees don't. They don't really believe in an afterlife as such. 
nor do they believe in angels. So the Pharisees in the whole scheme of things are not the worst. It's therefore telling that the Pharisees will be involved in getting Jesus crucified because even people who are well-intentioned, diligent Bible readers have their own spiritual dangers to which they are prone. And one of the ones that the Pharisees will have is not paying attention to the very things that scripture has predicted the Messiah will do and therefore not seeing that Jesus is the Messiah. Mm, all right, so that's, this is the group we're meeting here for the first time in Luke. They're going to become prominent as the text continues. And and I think it is it's worth noting, too, that they've come from all over the place. You've got people from Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. G- Jesus yeah. has primarily been in Galilee, the northern part. But now he's he's drawing these religious leaders from every which way, which certainly testifies to the truth of what Luke said earlier, that the report about Jesus is going out abroad. What, right. what about this this note that Luke says the power of the Lord was with him to heal? We, we've heard Luke talk about the Holy Spirit being with Jesus in, in many different aspects of his ministry already. Here it's, it's a little more generic sounding. The power of the Lord was with him to heal. What does that mean? Is it is it related to the presence of the Holy Spirit with him, as, as Luke's noted earlier? Yeah, it is the presence of the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's a generic just sort of power like he felt really amped up that day so he he was really ready to heal people in an unusually you know mighty way it is the it is the presence of the spirit of god and the spirit of god is with jesus like the judges of old in israel to remedy the ills among the people you know so the spirit of god comes at times in Old Testament times, in order to bring about change, betterment, the eviction of foreign invaders, whatever the case may be. Now, with Jesus, the Spirit of God has come to him and will remain there for the purpose of, here specifically, healing, right? Because Jesus's ministry in uh, early days, uh, certainly in terms of Luke before Luke 9:51 when he begins to start to walk toward Jerusalem for the last time. But before that his ministry is a ministry of teaching and and largely of healing. And uh the spirit of the Lord is being given in order for him to carry out that service of taking disease and affliction away from the people because the presence of all of these things disease affliction demons is a sign of god's curse and jesus is here to bless so the spirit of god is with him to heal to bless to restore i mean it goes back to that the sermon that jesus preached there in nazareth back in luke chapter 4 and that passage he quoted from isaiah and said it's fulfilled today and he's going to fulfill it again here in, in Luke chapter 5 and what happens with this paralytic. So take us take us into the, the scene. Just help us understand what we should picture in our minds with these men who are bringing the paralyzed man and what they do, the great lengths yeah. they go to to get this man to Jesus. Yeah, Jesus is in the middle of a house, which makes sense. They're gathered there, and uh, there's not a whole lot of room. There's, in fact, no room to get a guy on what we should think of as a sort of a stretcher uh, into the building. And so some group of men have brought this guy who can't move 
from somewhere. Now, uh, you know, towns are fairly small. Uh, maybe he comes from the same town. Maybe he comes from farther away, you know, but wherever it is that they carried him from, they have carried this other man on what is effectively a stretcher. I mean, when we think of beds, we've got pillows and bolsters and stuff shoved under the bed where we're storing Christmas decorations. <laughs> Their beds are much simpler, and so they can be picked up. So here's a man, light enough, sick enough to be picked up and carried by other men, just four of them, and they're going to take him. Now, when they can't get him in the door, and there's probably only one door, they can't get him in the door, they're going to take him up. Now, that is going to require, if you've ever tried to, you know, shove a couch up a very steep flight of stairs, a lot of strength <laughs> of a kind that they haven't been using already. So they really love this guy. You know, they don't say, oh, well, we'll come back another time or you're not worth it, Dave. Sorry, you know, too bad. Just didn't work out. We couldn't get tickets. They climb up ladders and they push him up those ladders on his bed to get him up to the roof. Now, Luke says that there are tiles. This must be a pretty nice house. Most Jewish houses, certainly in the Galilee, are going to have sticks and mud laid over roof beams. But whatever you know is up there on the roof, they pull that off right? We have to get in here. And if there was something very humbly and, and kind of quietly beautiful about the leper's posture, there is something marvelously energetically faithful about how the lengths these guys are going to go to, to get their friend in contact with Jesus. I mean, these are some wonderful, if you had these four guys in your church, you know, who knows what would be occurring. It would be amazing because they are not deterred by anything, you know, nothing. So they're going to rip some tiles off. They're going to rip whatever, it, you know, is underneath kind of sub uh, roofing materials off. And here they come and here comes their guy that they've been carrying. and wham, he's coming through the top of the house like he's some sort of natural disaster. <laughs> and here he is, put him right in front of Jesus. Jesus, you do something about it. Mm. I mean, the, the determination is wonderful. It is the playing out of the same kind of parable that you get Jesus telling in Luke about the persistent widow. Mm. You know, I I am not going to leave here until I get what I came for. Well, and so Jesus sees this. I mean, that the, the way you described it, Dr. Kuntz, no wonder verse 20 says, when he saw their faith, because it's, yeah. it's evident from everything that they've done that right. they've got this faith. And that, But then he speaks to the man, and, and right. this is where maybe we're kind of wondering, okay, wait, Jesus, why are you forgiving his sins? The power of the Lord's on you to heal Jesus yeah. They've lowered him down, and it would seem in a desire to heal. Although I suppose that's not explicitly written. Yeah. Why? Why is this the way Jesus starts? Man, your sins are forgiven. There are there are there are two different levels on which Jesus's forgiveness is the is the one thing needful here. 
you know, you could say kind of abstractly, but truly that the man is, has what is going on with him in his body that is happening because of human sin. That is happening because of Adam. That is happening because this man was conceived and born in sin. That is happening because this man is a sinner. Only sinners have to suffer the way that we do. Just like at the end, whether you were paralyzed or not, only sinners die. So abstractly, this guy is where he is because he is a sinner. And you have to start thinking of sinner, not just in terms of things that you have done, or things that you've said, but as this kind of genetic disease you can't get rid of, right? So he's a sinner, he's got sins, those need to be taken away. That's the root of the whole problem. If you didn't have any sin, you're never going to die, you're never going to be paralyzed, none of this is going to happen to you. So that's kind of abstract, it's true, but it's kind of far away. I think very concretely, also true, is the fact that when you suffer, whether you did it or not, let's just say hypothetically, this is obviously kind of my paraphrase. Hypothetically, this guy is paralyzed from the waist down because of a horrific car accident that he was in when he was 14 years old. Now, isn't that sad? He had his whole life in front of him. He knew how to walk. He'd been walking for whatever, 12 years, 13 years at that point. And now suddenly one day, as he's just turning into a man, he can't walk anymore. Not his fault, right? So you think, why is Jesus saying your sins are forgiven you? Because it is very, very insightful, obviously, of the Lord to understand that when you suffer that way, whether it was your fault or not, you associate every bad thing that happens to you with God's displeasure, God's anger, God's hatred, God's indifference. And Jesus is not angry. He's not displeased. He's not even indifferent. He loves this man and he forgives him. So he is taking away both the real objective, but somewhat abstract, let's be honest, idea that we suffer because we are sinners and Adam was a sinner. And he's also taking away the very concrete reality that most of us feel at some time in our lives, that bad things happen to us because we have done other bad things. You know, someone that didn't love this man might say, you know what, you're paralyzed because your parents are horrible people, or you were paralyzed because you were a horrible person and you deserved it when it happened to you. But Jesus loves the man, so he forgives him his sins. Oh, what a powerful word from the Lord, particularly to this man. And so again, it's it's not, it, maybe it seems unexpected to us, but it is precisely what this man needs. Right. Now, right. the scribes and the Pharisees, they don't like this. And, and here we start to see the enmity that's already existing between Jesus and these religious leaders. Why, why is it that they think Jesus is blaspheming with these words? Yeah, they have, they have nice boxes that they have put things in. And in one box is stuff people go through. And then in another box is God could help people. So they don't say, no, you like it's bad. No one can forgive his sins. They just say God can forgive his sins. And obviously they're saying, you know, you're not God. So, you know, you can't do that. The problem is those boxes where they know one thing and it's in one box and then they know another thing. It's in a different box is that 
Jesus unites in himself being truly a man and truly God. So what's happening there is now we have someone who touches people and we have someone um, who looks at people and loves them. We have someone who is going to weep. We have someone a little bit earlier in the reading who is going to go out to a place where there aren't people sometimes and he's going to pray there because he needs to focus and you know whatever he needs to do while he's away from the active ministry. We have someone who is truly a man in every way like us except without sin. And this is such a beautiful thing that we have in Hebrews where he where the writer says he is a merciful and faithful high priest. You know, so he's a priest, but he doesn't just certify that you're clean, he'll actually cleanse you. And he doesn't need to use other, you know, creatures blood to cleanse you on, you know, the day of atonement. He can just reach out and cleanse you and change your whole life. I mean, it is right there, directly available in Jesus. And, you know, I mean, when you look at the scribes and the Pharisees, teachers of the law, it's really easy to say, you know, you guys are stupid. You guys are just rude. You know, or they're, they're bad religious people. We like to use this word, this adjective religious, like it's all bad. Religion is bad, whatever. You know, that's kind of a cool thing to say, I guess. But the problem here is, you might be confused too, because Jesus Jesus is not like anybody else, because he's so much better than we are. <laughs> I mean, he doesn't look. He's he's not he's not harsh like this. And I love his answer because it's a little indirect. You know, why do you question in your hearts? You know that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I think really the issue here is. People have trouble believing, and this is where I think, you know, maybe take it easy on the Pharisees, because this might be your problem too. I think people have trouble believing that God actually wants to deal with us on earth and change everything on earth, right? It would be fine to say one day in heaven or something, you know, things could be better. Jesus is actually doing things on earth. So, you know, they don't understand who he is. He's the Messiah. He's God come in the flesh. They also don't understand what that means. Well, so how does how does Jesus answer then help them to understand that? And 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 the question, you know, which is easier: your sins are forgiven you, or to say, well, like, what's the answer to that question? Which of those is easier to say? <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, this is uh, this is fantastic because they. I think they. I think people hear this maybe once superficially, and they think, well, it's got to be harder to turn somebody who's paralyzed and is somebody who can use all his limbs, that's got to be harder than forgiving sins. But there's kind of a trick here, you know? Jesus is actually saying, you know what's really hard is forgiving sins. Let me show you something easy, and then maybe you'll believe, hey, why don't you get up and go home, (laughs) you know? Um, Because he's demonstrating a power over creation. Get up. You can use your legs. I made your legs. Go ahead. You can stand up. Go ahead and do it. That power over creation is meant to lead you to an understanding of his power also over the forgiveness of sins. Which is easier to say? 
Well, they're both kind of easy to say. Which is easier to do? Well, it's easy and expected that God could fix people's bodies. Remember, the law can actually has provision for when that does happen. You know, well, sometimes people turn out not to be lepers anymore. So here's what the priest does then. Just like in the first part that we talked about earlier in the hour, now here in the second part, the thing that no one expects, but that Jesus is bringing in himself, is God actually changing everything. They might expect that God could forgive somebody's sins or heal somebody. They don't expect to actually encounter that God in their midst, right? And what I love about, you know, the man, the paralytic himself, but also the guys who bring him is they're not worried about, I don't get it, or I don't understand how this can work, or, you know, why would God do this? Or how can Jesus be the son of man? They're just like, we got to get these tiles out of the way. We got to get to this guy, right? They take Jesus very simply at his word. Okay, he's going to fix it. Let's go. Let's get there. And so, I mean, with with Jesus then, which is easier to say by actually saying, get up, pick up your bed, go home. He shows that he can do that, of course. And then he shows yeah. that he can, in fact, forgive sins. And I, I think, I mean, again, we should we should probably connect this all the way forward to what he's going to do by his own death and resurrection. How, how is it possible for him to say either of these things and for them to be true? Ultimately, yeah. that comes when he dies and he rises. And, and then, of course, you know, I mean, he sends his apostles to proclaim that and, and continue yeah. to give that out in his name. Yeah, you have to think about, you know, why would Jesus say, I for, you know, your sins are forgiven you first? It's because he believes it's the most important thing he could say. And it's the most important thing he could say because he is about the most important work. He's about his father's business. And that means, most of all, that the most important work is the work he's going to do in dying and rising for mankind to bring him a whole new life. I think maybe people hear these stories, they hear, you know, this guy was. He, was, he had this horrible skin disease or this guy was paralyzed. And maybe they come away from hearing it thinking that the, the temporary things that could change in your body would be the best things. And I certainly understand that from a human perspective. If you begin to feel better, it's like your whole life opens up. Jesus is opening up. You have to understand this. He is opening up not just a whole new life for the next whatever 40, 50 years that this guy got to have with the use of his legs. Amazing, right? I mean, this, your whole life's going to change. But he is opening up by his death and resurrection, not just 40 or 50 years, but eternities and ages of ages, world without end. He's opening up to you through his cross and the empty tomb. So when you think about that, you realize it's not so much that he's saying, oh, it's bad that you wanted to not be paralyzed anymore. You wanted not to have this horrible disease anymore. He's saying you need to pay attention because these little things will show you what is even more important, which is easier to say. Well, it's easier to fix the next 40 or 50 years. He's not just fixing that. He's fixing eternity. He's changing everything forever for us by his cross and resurrection. The Reverend Dr. Adam Kuntz is Assistant Professor of Exegetical Theology at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. 
helping us today with Luke chapter 5, verses 12 to 26. Dr. Kuntz, thanks for being our guest today. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 5 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.